The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. We'll start with the bad news. You may underspend in your retirement and not live your best life as a result. The good news? Your kids will enjoy it for you. On second thought. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Retire with Style. I'm Wade and I'm joined by... Alex. And today we're going to continue the conversation on the 4% rule and its assumptions and start with a new track on why actually everything else being set aside with <laughs> assumptions, the 4% rule could be too low in some cases. And there's six factors we'd like to look at. It's, I think we can get through the first four factors today. And then later on, we get into variable spending, which could easily be multiple episodes. So I'll just have to play that one by ear. But at least what we're going to start with today, reasons why the 4% rule might actually be too low include the 30-year assumption may be too long in some considerations, that retirement spending won't keep pace with inflation throughout retirement, that people will use a broader portfolio diversification than assumed by the, the simple asset classes of the 4% rule, and we'll also uh, touch upon buffer assets, which is something we did talk about with the four ways to manage sequence of returns risk. It's kind of one of these things that it's, doesn't fit perfectly anywhere, but we'll, and it's not necessarily a total return strategy, but we'll, we'll at least address briefly about buffer assets today as well. And that'll be the first four issues. We'll make it fit, Wade. We'll, we'll make, make it fit. fit. And then in subsequent <laughs> episodes on this theme, we'll talk more about variable spending strategies as well as how having reliable income from outside of the portfolio, such as social security, pensions, annuities, can actually help support behaving uh, differently with your investment portfolio, potentially being more aggressive, both in terms of, well, asset allocation as well as spending. But that'll be the next subsequent episodes. Before we get started on that, Alex, what's what's new in your world? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since the last podcast, I think this little cup of Cuban coffee is, is the new thing that's that's in my world. Uh, we're, we're, right? There's there's a suspension of, of reality, right, in this podcast. Oh, but you're we're, breaking kayfabe we're on us again. <laughs> uh, say it you again? kayfabe on us. So we're doing two episodes back to what back. What is that? Is that like the fourth wall or that's something? That's like the, the, the Carney <laughs> speak for what goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> You're oh, revealing our okay. inner world. Yeah, 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 These are yeah. not live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I framed that as we're breaking down that fourth wall, right? Mm -hmm. And don't they say that on, on, on TV? Uh, my wife is home. So <laughs> that's new. And uh, I got myself a cup of coffee. What, what about yourself, Wade? Well, same old, same old. <laughs> the weather is getting cooler. It's refreshing time of year oh that's right actually you can tell it's fall this this week definitely yeah. most definitely it's, it's starting Especially to by turn the time people clockwork, hear this right? podcast which will probably be about two weeks after the recording time but uh, yeah we're really letting you in behind the scenes here right now <laughs> sorry wait are, can we continue did i, no, no, did, I did you have something else planned that i messed yeah, up Alex for you too much to talk about how the s p 500 dropped four percent yesterday but or two days ago but uh by the time i this, wanted to talk about you did, that you said i said oh but we want to keep this evergreen that this isn't going to actually play right away so everyone's forgotten about That's that true. by the time uh, they hear the episode well, the title of why the 4% rule may be too low coming off a market like 4% uh, drop, you know, uh, may 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 be re resonating with people. So we're going to switch it up and be optimistic yeah, be... and talk about why it may be too high. Yeah, this is <laughs> the good news. The, the cup is half full. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and actually to, to keep the theme going there, what we ended the previous episode with was, well, what if... 30 years is not a long enough assumption for the retirement horizon. Well, you can flip that. What if 30 years is too long? And, and this is 
Like I've gotten questions from financial advisors who will say something like, my client is 85 years old. Uh, It seems like probably the 4% rule isn't right for them, but I thought it was a universal rule that you always apply. So I'm not really sure. Could you clarify that for me? And and indeed, uh, an 85-year-old, if they're, I guess in this context, just retiring because the 4% rule is only meant to apply to the first year of retirement, yeah, they may not have to plan for a 30-year retirement horizon. And if the retirement horizon is less than 30 years, there's not a 4% rule in that context either. To to round up, so with Bill Bankin's assumptions around the 50-50 portfolio, the historical safe max, you could say that 30 years is 4%, 20 years, 5%, 15 years, 6%, 10 years, 8%. So you kind of get that. That's the sustainable withdrawal as rate. The, uh, it goes yeah, up. The worst case, <laughs> uh, the highest spending rate you could have used in the worst case historical rolling of that year, many years periods <laughs> in history. So in the worst case, 10-year rolling historical period, 8%, well, 8.16% was the worst case scenario. In the worst case, 15-year historical period, 6.01% was the worst case scenario. In the worst case, 20-year period, 4.98% was the worst case scenario. And in the worst case, 30-year period, that's our our 4% rule friend, 4.03% was the worst case scenario. So wait, are you saying that if your horizon is 10 years, Dave Ramsey may have finally gotten it right? Yeah, that's what he says was the safe withdrawal rate (laughs) for retirees. (laughs) Better hope you don't last beyond 10 years in that context. (laughs) Yeah. I'll let you follow up with that one. Wait, I wanted to, I wanted to rattle your cage there a little bit with that comment. No, no, it's all good. Uh, but that's, I don't know, there's not that much more to say about it. I mean, in the previous episode, we started getting into the 4MD rules, but even that, it's pretty much as simple as this. If, if 30 years is longer than you need to plan for, then no, you're not constrained to using something like the 4% rule. Yeah, but I, I also think just to leave it at that, just look, we're dealing with a soft science. And so there are no hard and fast rules for anything. I, I think that's something that you may have picked up here. That's why we're, we're agnostic to various strategies, frankly, because there's many ways to get it right. This is not thermodynamics where one input goes in, one input has to come out, etc. And so I, I'm going back to the advisor that wrote wrote you a letter or an email or whatnot saying, hey, I thought this is like kind of the standard rule and this is a, a, a something, you know, some sort of axiom. No, that, that's the farthest thing from the truth. The reality is it's just that starting point kind of weather gauge, if you will. And if you're 85 years old, yeah, you're definitely not looking at a 30-year horizon. If you are, you know, more power to you. But <laughs> most likely you're not. And even if you're 105, still going strong, you're, you're not you're not active, you know, and from a spending standpoint. So you you can relax the assumptions a little bit, not a little bit, significantly so. I mean, it, it's it's not it's nothing to sneeze at if you go from a four percent rule to a six percent rule by you know cutting in half the horizon thirty years to fifteen years. That's it's a fifty percent increase. That's that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it, it's the shorter the horizon, the higher the withdrawal rate. I mean, at the extreme, a one year planning horizon. Of course, the safe max is one hundred percent, and then you just take it from there. <laughs> two-year planning horizon, it's going to be, well, to be under 50% in the worst case scenario. Yeah. But that's kind and, of the And this idea. goes back to even your payment. I mean, intuitively, it's it's your payment calculation, your payment mm-hmm. rule calculation. Mm-hmm. It's one of the levers. One of the main levers is uh, horizon. And it has a significant, significant uh, effect, the, the shorter the time horizon is. That's right. It doesn't go linearly. It almost like goes... Yeah, it's not linear at all. It's parabolic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that covers uh, the first of the four issues we want to look at today. The second one is uh, retirees may not necessarily require that constant inflation-adjusted spending so that we're not assuming that your spending grows with inflation every year of retirement. We've talked about this on the podcast already because we had David Blanchett on a past episode and one of the many things he's well known for is the retirement spending smile, which is just this idea that you don't, your spending doesn't grow with inflation throughout retirement. It, it, it doesn't keep pace with inflation. 
It could even be 20 to 30% less by your 80s compared to your 60s. It may pick up again later in life due to rising health expenses or long-term care expenses, but it still ends up being quite a bit less than if you had just increased spending with inflation for every year of retirement. There's a couple different directions we can go with that. It's just, you know, one thing that listeners should should know the terms because you do hear them from time to time. Uh, there was a book written in the late 1990s by Michael Stein where he uh, coined the phrase the go-go years, the slow-go years, and the no-go years. And roughly speaking, he would say, like, well, if we think of the traditional retirement age at 65, the go-go years are, say, 65 to 75 that's the early retirement period when you're as healthy as you're ever going to be, when you're doing all these things, the kind of every day is a Saturday, traveling the world, doing <laughs> everything that you've always wanted to do, this leisure. You may spend a lot during the go-go years. And then he says the slow-go years, ages 75 to 85, that's where you start slowing down. You're not necessarily doing as much traveling. You're not engaging in as expensive of hobbies. You're spending more time at home. Uh, maybe going to the uh, the discount at the old country buffet instead of going to the nicer steakhouse that that sort of thing that just reduces the uh, the bills and and reduces the amount that you're spending in that time period and then the the no go years ages eighty five and older you don't have a lot of like leisure or discretionary spending necessarily at that point you're kind of staying at home taking it easy. Um, that maybe some other health expenses are picking up there, but your other, aside from health or long-term care, you're not spending as much at those ages most of the time. And that that's a very different assumption than what the 4% rule is, which was that you're, you're spending whatever you're spending at 65, it's going to be that same amount plus inflation in every subsequent year throughout your entire retirement. The, the, uh, the point I would, Two more points I, w- I would add to that. You know, spending crosses a whole variety of of, of uh, sectors. You know, there's spending for leisure. There's spending for home goods. There's spending for food. There's spending for health care. And they all have different levels of inflation. And so from that vantage point as well, you know, essential expenses, you know, may lag from an inflationary standpoint to more uh, recreational ones. And, and so that, that sort of exacerbates that sort of uh, spending smile. But the other piece to wait, I would say, and, and we'll just take what's happening now, currently where we're in this period of high inflation, and I'm, I'm put it, marry it to a practical use case, if you will. You know, at McLean, we have clients, they come in for meetings, and many of our clients are in this decumulation mode. And so we have a retirement spending plan for them. And the folks that are in a total return strategy, we're not necessarily saying, well, inflation based on the latest uh, CPI numbers, it's it's 8%. So we're going to increase your paycheck, your retirement income paycheck by 8%. You know, there's not that expectation. Well, you can if you absolutely absolutely need it and you run a plan to see if it's viable. But it's, you know, it doesn't run on clockwork like that. There, you know, folks just don't naturally spend that much, you know, relative to last year, even though inflation was what it was, it's it's not tied one-on-one with their own particular spending. Wait? Yeah. Yeah. And just uh, given an, an example of trying to put some kind of number around this too, like I ran the, the numbers on from David Blanchett's retirement spending smile. And I don't remember if we even discussed this on that episode, but it, just a brief moment to repeat it if we did already discuss it. Looking at his kind of typical retirement spending pattern for somebody who's spending about $100,000 a year in retirement, from age 65 into their mid-80s, their spending drops in in inflation-adjusted terms by more than 26%. And then that's when it starts picking up again. But then I I took that pattern and applied it to kind of the the Bill Bengen safe max formula with all the same assumptions except that Instead of using constant inflation-adjusted spending, you're using this spending smile pattern of spending. And because spending declines over time, your initial spending rate can be higher. Specifically, 4% went up to 4.7%. That you, The safe max with, with the spending smile uh, was 4.7%. 
instead of 4%, which means something. It means you could have retired with 15% less investment assets uh, than otherwise. And so it's important to kind of get a sense of just understanding the constant inflation adjusted spending strategy is a conservative spending strategy. I mean, it's a conservative assumption, but maybe it's overly conservative uh, in many, not in all cases, but in many cases. And, and so it's, it's worth thinking about the budget and whether it is reasonable to assume that certain uh, expenses will decline with age and that you can account for that in your budgeting or not. I, I think that's a great point. And if you're on a podcast, you know, you, you, you have your podcast player up, I suggest you hit the rewind 15 seconds twice and, and listen to it again. Cause I, I think this point really strikes home with, you know, I, I see it with the clients again, I, this, this is a more, this gives people a lot of clarity in terms of what to expect, you know, as they're spending within a total return approach. I, I think it's dead on. If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M.com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you. Yeah, so that's good news. That's that's an important reason why the 4% rule could be uh, too low in, in that context. Uh, what else we got, Wade? Yeah, yeah we're kind of <laughs> flying through these. <laughs> so the next one is that... The the 4% rule is based on simple asset classes. It's generally, and this was, you know, reviewing Bill Bengen's research. Initially, it was large cap U.S. stocks or the S&P 500, intermediate term U.S. government bonds with about a five-year maturity. Now, that's going to be the sweet spot for bonds always, that you get the highest sustainable withdrawal rates with those intermediate term government bonds. But if you start adding other asset classes, you can bump up the withdrawal rate. And one of Bill Bengen's early studies in this area, and it's actually, if you like read his interviews and so forth, he doesn't talk about the 4% rule. He actually talks about the 4.5% rule because he put a, a very healthy allocation to small cap stocks, not, not like a market capitalization weighted. It was approximately 40% small cap, 20% large cap, 40% uh, bonds, and that got his historical safe max up to about, well, it's 4.59% or about, you know, rounding to 4.5% in that context. And that's the first of many examples of just having this conversation around, yeah, if you use a broader asset allocation, that gives you a better combination of risk and return. It doesn't necessarily have to increase the return, but if you lower the volatility of the portfolio, that's going to help push you to higher withdrawal rates. And so, of course, it varies by user, but a broader asset allocation could certainly be used as a justification for a higher spending number, potentially. Now, just a couple of points here uh, with regards to the allocation, because I think I, I think it was, I don't know, two episodes ago, three episodes ago, we, we, we made the point of people sometimes get too cute with their allocations in terms of an, over, an over-engineering kind of component. And so from, from the vantage point of what you're saying, I, I think what's important is that we're not, you know, establish a, there's two types of ways to look at allocation, right? There's strategic allocation and tactical allocation. Strategic allocation is, listen, I'm going to look at the investment literature and I'm going to try to assess to the best of my abilities, you know, how to, how to create a diversified portfolio among different asset classes. Now, an asset class, in, at least in my definition, is you know a sector within the market that has an expected return, you know that, that has sort of uh, you know has some sort of signal in terms of how you know you're going to be compensated for for diversifying into that particular asset class. And if you look at the you know, market history, there's certain factors that that provide these compensated market-driven returns. There's you know being in the market. There's exposure to value stocks versus growth stocks. You know, the jury's out. Some people say there really may be no small cap premium after all, but let's just assume there's a small cap premium, you know, small cap stocks versus larger cap stocks. There's momentum. There's a little bit of a momentum factor, but there's also quality of earnings versus, versus you know, just having the general market sort of exposure. So if you're overweight to quality 
size and value, not overweight, but you have exposure to those asset classes within the markets, international and domestic. Now you've created a portfolio in which you are sort of being compensated for these different dimensions of risk. And so I just want to make that clear when we're looking at different types of asset classes as opposed to the technology sector or you know transportation sector. Those aren't necessarily you're not necessarily being compensated for exposure to those sectors above and beyond what you know the, the general market would bring you. In fact, you may be actually creating more volatility than necessary. And so from the vantage point of what Wade is saying, it it, it it really bears mentioning. You want to diversify your portfolio across the different dimensions of compensated risk within the market and doing it in such a way that you can reduce the volatility. Now, diversification doesn't necessarily mean your portfolio volatility will go to zero. You know, simply because you're bringing in uncorrelated assets, that's that's a very tough thing to do, especially if you're in the market already. You're not going to find that uncorrelated uh, El Dorado kind of sector. So you, you want to just make sure that you have that sort of healthy exposure to them, and you'll you, you'll get compensated for it. I, that's that's. I, I just want to point that out, Wade. And this is not an investment podcast episode or, or anything along those lines. I just want to point out that from a strategic standpoint, once you do that. That's really, you've done a lot. Tactical allocation, remember, that's a strategic asset allocation. A tactical allocation approach would be, it's not something I would espouse. And and Wade, you you can speak for yourself, but I I don't think you you would either. That's where it's like, hey, things are cheap right now. I'm going to go all in in the market. Hey, I don't like where inflation is heading. I'm going to get out of the market. Or, hey, look, I I see where things are going. I'm going to go all energy. I'm going to put all, you know, I'm going to reallocate. I'm going to get out of technology. And I'm going to go into energy, the energy sector. That's that's something that is, is you're, again, you're going to be violating anything that, that Wade is most likely saying with regards to how a diversified portfolio can help you extend, if you will, a sustainable withdrawal rate because the original study was just looking at the U.S. S&P 500. Wade? Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to to think about it, and it's you, know, you don't need to overdo it with the the asset allocation. But you know, certainly, most people are going to use more than two asset classes, and and it is it's the risk return trade offs, and if you can get the risk better under control through diversification, yeah, it's an avenue towards at least uh, having the potential that you could spend more than the four percent rule just because you are using broader portfolio diversification. We're not saying to necessarily overdo it or over-engineer it, but you know, two asset classes is, for the most part, probably underdoing yeah. it in most cases. And, and the other piece that you said, and, and I think it mentions, and again, we didn't, we don't, don't usually go into it too much because you know, yeah, it brings in this news factor, but with regards to bonds as well, I mean, Wade has said this on numerous occasions, but the intermediate term bonds are the sort of sweet spot. And what that means, obviously, it's return per unit of risk, right? Mm -hmm. There's an expected return per unit of risk that you're taking. And as you go further on the yield curve, and the yield curve is effectively, you know, six-month T-bills have a certain yield, right? And it increased, that yield increases as you extend the maturity. You know, six months, a year, three years, five years, seven years, and, and 10 years, 15, 30 years, right? Let's say something like that, right? And it, you know, there's a steady increase until about, let's say five to seven years, historically speaking, five to seven years. And then it kind of levels out. You know, there may be a little bit more at the 10, 15, and 30. Sometimes there isn't, and that's when they say there's an inverted yield curve, and that's portending of recession or something like that. But the, the point is, once you get past that five, seven-year period, the standard deviation on those bonds increases significantly so relative to the extra risk you're taking. And so from that vantage point, you know, when we're looking at this and we're looking at diversifying across fixed income, you're really looking at, you know, not extending the term, you know, and by that I mean the the length of time of, of these bonds beyond five, seven years for the purposes of this of this approach, you know, specifically, because there's no extra return. And within the total return construct, remember, the whole purpose of fixed income is to be a ballast to your entire portfolio. Because you're trying to reduce that that volatility so you can take the sustainable withdrawal rate. It's hard enough to create a safe withdrawal rate from a volatile portfolio. You know, so working within that construct, you really have to reduce that volatility. And that's why, you know, in, in the previous episode, we talked about investing for yield. 
and, and things along those lines. You really want to get away. You really want to disabuse yourself from that, you know, from an allocation standpoint when you're creating this sustainable withdrawal rate. I added that point on the bonds, Wade, because I, I think you, you mentioned it a couple of times, but I, I think the importance of that merits the strobe light kind <laughs> of uh, attention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So now we've talked about broader portfolio diversification. Another, when Alex and I were talking about whether or not to bring up this other point as well, but you know, you could have a changing, the, the glide path of the asset allocation as well could be another avenue here. And in particular, Michael Kitsis and I wrote an article about a rising equity glide path in retirement that uh, became quite popular with the media because it's counterintuitive. Uh, it, it does have some behavioral considerations. Uh, I know David Blanchett doesn't like it. And for a long time, Alex was at one of these <laughs> examples. Uh, after having a few drinks at a conference, he's, he'll start explaining why he didn't like it. But at that point, I'd had enough drinks. Me that, or David? The David. <laughs> but I'd had enough oh, drinks okay. that it's like the, the teacher and penis going, wah, wah, wah. I, I never knew what he was talking about at that point. But uh, he published an article <laughs> in the Social Science Research Network in July called Spending Elasticity and Optimal Portfolio Risk Levels which explains uh, his critique of the rising equity glide path. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, because of the assumption, everything's got assumptions if you start varying assumptions. So we can get into that as well. But yeah, as part of this uh, asset allocation conversation, we should probably make reference sure. to the rising equity glide path. I, I, I think uh, it's an interesting, it's a topic, you know, personally, I always try to, whenever it comes up, I, I, I try to get to the next subject as, as fast <laughs> as possible because it's like, oh my goodness, here we go again. Because all the things, and that that's nothing against, it's more of all the things that I think you've written about, this is the one that strikes a chord with people in, in a funny sort of way. I mean, there, there, it's a, you're, a lot of the stuff you have done is impactful. That's not what I mean, but... I mean it more like for some reason, re some people really just hang on to this concept. Yeah, and it, it resonates and, with some and, people. And can't let and go it, of it. Yeah, it yeah, like I've never seen before. It, and they can't kind of let go of it. And it's interesting. Like we're going to get questions about this. And <laughs> I know Bob is like, oh, my goodness, here we go again. Somebody with a rising glide path question. I, I'm almost what, – what is your take on it? Before you go into it, because what, what, I'm sure these – you know, you wrote about it. And enough time has passed that you've been able to digest it, right? Mm -hmm. What's your personal take on it, just aside from this podcast kind of thing? Like, what do you think about it? And then we can sort of incorporate yeah. it into the, the podcast. My take episode. on it was it's an interesting way to manage sequence of returns risk that could kind of the 4% rule tells you to invest aggressively throughout retirement. And the rising equity glide path idea says, actually, as long as you're willing to get more aggressive over time, you can actually start with a lower stock allocation at the beginning of retirement and then just behaviorally behavior it's a whole nother issue but mathematically that can help manage the sequence of returns risk in retirement and i still okay, stand by that 100 and like when i see when now i, I can now understand <laughs> david blanchett's critique it's because of a different assumption but uh <laughs> we can can dig into all that but that that's all it was it was just an interesting exploration that it's the lifetime sequence of returns risk is you're the most vulnerable to market volatility around the retirement date and so the rising equity glide path idea is pre-retirement, it's what the target date funds do. So when you're young, you have a higher stock allocation. As you approach retirement, you have a lower stock allocation. But we've already talked about target date funds. They don't really do, they're not considering retirement income. They're either staying with a low stock allocation or they're even getting lower throughout retirement. And what we were saying is actually from the context of managing retirement risk, Rather than keeping that low stock allocation that you have at retirement, you could actually let it start to go back up over time as you go into okay. retirement. Two, two caveats, because I don't want somebody listening thinking, oh, I start with zero and in five years I'm at 100% equity. That would be an extreme you version know, what, of it. <laughs> I, I, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm saying that to, yeah. to make the point more than yeah, anything. Yeah, the case study. What, what is your... What kind of is your, in, in the study, what were you looking yeah, at? Yeah, the case study and we were, were looking at was kind of, instead of being 60% stocks throughout your entire retirement, you maybe you start at 30% stocks and work your way back up to 60% stocks uh, about in 10 how many years, years into retirement, 10 or 15 years into retirement. Okay, so it's 15 years, 30%, you're doing 2% a year kind yeah. of thing, right? So it's a very measured approach. Uh, so something, something else I want to drive home is 
it's not it's not tactical based on oh the market is I don't like how the markets are doing so I'm gonna start low because you know uh, the winter is coming. You're doing it simply because sequence risk. Remember the first few years, the five years before and the five years into retirement, you have the most you know are most impactful with regards to your distribution ability to take distributions from the portfolio. So effectively, if you start with a conservative allocation around that window, that fragile decade, if you will, if you start with a very conservative allocation during that time period, you're kind of buttercing yourself from this volatility. Hence, once you get past that fragile decade, you know, you're, you're kind of like you're in the clear is too strong of a word, but you're kind of in the clear from the fragile decade. Mm-hmm. So you can start, you know, with confidence taking an allocation from this higher, I mean, taking a distribution from this higher allocation. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. There's, there's a sort of, I'm conservative because this is my fragile decade and I really can't afford the volatility, yeah. right? And once I'm past that, I'm good. And and so it may merit you explaining how impactful is that fragile decade to your investment distribution success? Oh, right. I mean, it, it's very impactful. One early study before many years before the rising glide path was just estimating that if you had a 30-year long retirement, the cumulative market performance during the first 10 years of retirement explains 80% of what is a sustainable spending rate for that retirement. So it's if you had a bad first okay. 10 years, it really doesn't matter what happens after that. You're going to be stuck with a low sustainable spending rate. <laughs> So explains 80% is another way of saying the first 10 years of your retirement while you're taking distribution is going to explain 80% of the outcome that you will have. Yeah, so that the first 33% (laughs) of your retirement duration, what happens is responsible for 80% of your entire retirement So it's disproportionate. Disproportionate. It's disproportionate. It's not equal. So by going... And remember, in the previous episodes, we were saying, okay, if you start with a 35%, you know, the, the banging stuff is like anywhere from 35 to 80%, you're kind of in the ballpark, right? So let's say for argument's sake, you, you know, you want to kind of implement something like this because you don't want to be subject to the, the, the vagaries of the market, right? So what Wade is saying, okay, start at 35%. Take your distribution and ratchet it up 2% every year until you're at... I don't know, whatever, 65%, 60%. At that point, you can afford to be 60% because you got past your fragile decade. Wait, I, I want you to correct mm-hmm. me if, if I'm, if I'm no, wrong. I'm just kind of trying to reframe this. The, think back to the 4% rule again, how it was based on the 30-year period from 1966 to 1995. Well, even in that historical context, 1982 was this big turning point. A retiree in 1982 could have used almost a 10% withdrawal rate. It's like markets do great after 1982, but it was still the worst case scenario. The, the 1966 retiree, even though the second half of their retirement was the best case scenario. And that's uh, the, this rising equity glide path uh, is just saying, you know, of course, the true worst case scenario is you have 30 years of bad market returns, but nothing will solve that. The kind of practical worst case scenario, <laughs> you have bad market returns early on and then good market returns later on. And that's exactly what the rising equity glide path will help manage for you. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. Uh, what was Blanchett's assumption that's different yeah, than uh, yours? I'm just curious. I, I forgot. Well, to explain it as simply as possible, it's retirees can be flexible with their spending, which is actually what we're going to be spending a oh. lot of time on with the next episode. <laughs> but if you okay. assume retirees are flexible with the spending, that the assumption we use to create the rising equity glide path article was the same as the 4% rule around you want constant inflation adjusted spending. If you move away from the requirement of constant inflation adjusted spending, it weakens the case for a rising equity glide path. Well, I would say this in your defense and if Michael, I mean, if if David was here, he'd he'd probably have a, a witty response, but he's not necessarily changing the assumption. He's changing the landscape under which 
the investigation is being done, you're introducing a whole new variable that you know, people will change, you know, their their spending pattern. But Wait, uh-huh. you purposely are not doing yeah, that yeah. for, you know, from an apples to apples kind of comparison. Well, we'll get into with the next episode, a, the opposite of constant inflation adjusted spending is constant percentage, just spend a percent of what's left every year. And there's actually no yeah. sequence of returns risk with that strategy. Therefore, it, there's no need for a rising equity glide path because the, the order of returns doesn't matter. So I think ultimately, I mean, the simplest way to explain it is he's kind of picking up some of that phenomenon in his argument of why he's not a fan of the rising equity glide path. What do you, what do you say to my comment that I've said before to you that the, the, the equity rising equity glide path, if you look at retirement income strategies, again, total return, risk wrap, income protection, time segmentation. I almost view this as a hybrid total return and time segmentation approach because you're kind of taking an artificially low bond allocation to start with. And you're kind of using that as a buffer is too strong a word because well, you're, yeah. you're, you're you know, probably artificially using bond high bond allocation, right? Yeah, sorry, sorry. You're using a artificially high bond allocation, which is kind of like a time segmentation thing where you're, you know, for you know the, the first initial years to get out of that fragile decade. What are your thoughts around that when I when yeah. I sort of said, hey, wait, the first time I read it, that's what I kind of thought. Yeah, and actually what prompted the article in the first place was we had written a previous article, Michael Kitsis and I, just looking more at using annuities in retirement. And what we kind of recognized there was if you treat the present value of all your annuity payments as part of your bond holdings, as you go throughout retirement and you receive the annuity payments, the present value of your remaining annuity payments gets smaller. And so in practical terms, as long as your investment portfolio is not declining as rapidly, uh, when you have an annuity in retirement, you have a rising equity glide path. And so part of the reason the annuity could help was because it created a rising equity glide path for you. And so then we, we just took that intuition and applied it to a pure total return world, where what if you just set your asset allocation to be a rising equity glide path? So that was the original motivation of it. And, and yeah, you could also interpret that as a time segmentation where maybe I'll set up a 10-year bond ladder that I won't replenish. That would also give you a rising equity glide path. So yeah, yeah. It's a- that's, how, yeah that's how I kind of viewed it. Uh, what's the... What are the biggest arguments that you get about that? Because this is kind of think about it. This is the opposite of a of a target date fund, <laughs> you know, in terms of how they're coming across an allocation, at least for that fragile decade portion. What, what's your argument? What, what what are kind of the some of the arguments you hear that people kind of misunderstand? And what I'm getting at it, and I'll t- just to start it off. Sometimes people say, "Oh, wait, that's crazy." I mean, you're espousing somebody go from 3070 portfolio to a 100% equity portfolio in, in 10 years. And so they're going to be 85 and they're going to have this, uh, you know, very, very aggressive portfolio. Yeah, right. I mean, so that could just be a misunderstanding because you don't have to get so aggressive, but <laughs> leaving that aside, I, no, there's I get definitely it. a behavioral uh, piece. I, and I think even Moshe Malevsky tweeted something. I forget exactly what he said, but like, right, I'm going to have my 90-year-old grandma be 90% stocks. And yes, there is a behavioral element to this that may not work. <laughs> so, And I don't I don't argue against that at all. It's not, I'm not advocating for the rising equity glide path. I just thought it was a an interesting article to write. But yeah, if in, rea- in real life, of course, if in your 60s, you get used to less portfolio volatility, it could be hard to introduce more portfolio volatility in your 70s and 80s. And if that's the case, then it's not really a practical approach to take. No, but I would say in your defense, I think sometimes those that's kind of a straw man kind of tweet, you know, in, in deference to Moshe. I, th- I think the guy is, you know, he's the leader in the field, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by, you know, it, there's him and everyone else, frankly. Uh, I, I think you'd agree with that yeah, way. I don't yeah, think I'm saying anything. <laughs> You know, the distinction has to uh, but, be made between like researchers in the United States versus researchers in North America. Because when you add in North America, Moshe trumps everyone. So, yeah, right. Uh, but uh, I would say, you know, like what you said earlier. Listen, you, you, we're talking about going from like thirty-five percent, which is abnormally low, 
to, you know, even if you do 2% a year for 10 years, okay, you're at 55% equity. It's that, that that's kind of range bound. And that's why I thought it was good to put some sort of range bound. And to be clear, we're not advocating that we don't know your situation. We don't know your, you know, your issues or anything like that. We're just trying to provide some sort of magnitude of, of, of what range you may be talking about when it comes to this rising equity Goliath path. We're not saying go from 30% equity to 100% equity. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just speaks to a broader point, too, because this comes up for me and other issues, too. You know, part of doing research is you see an interesting idea, you test it out, you write an article about it, you move on. But then sometimes it gets latched on to you as you become a lifelong advocate of whatever that particular article was about. And and that's not necessarily the case. I'm, not, I'm certainly not a spending, dedicating my life to telling people they should use a rising equity blind path in retirement. It was one article, a couple of kind of related articles, but it was just something that I thought was worth exploring, not, not something I've dedicated my life to. No, I mean, what I like about it is, and this is what, what the purpose of research is to move forward a research agenda. And you kind of, you know, Good publicity, bad publicity, to some extent, not that this was either, but it, it, it had people's attention. And then whether good, I, I think it's good from a scientific standpoint, somebody writes a counter argument, somebody writes a whatever, either way, it doesn't matter. I mean, Wade, as much as anyone is agnostic about these things, but if it moves the science forward, if it takes the dialogue forward, that's kind of what you want. And I, I think your the article did that. Yeah, well, thank you. Okay, so we we talked about the portfolio diversification, and that could also include just different glide paths in retirement. The last topic for this episode, and it's this one that's always hard to fit in, but it's buffer assets. And we talked about it as part of the four ways to manage sequence of returns risk. It's actually not necessarily a pure total return approach. It could be just as much a part of any retirement style. But to remind listeners again, A buffer asset is something held outside your portfolio that you don't really treat as part of your portfolio. And I know when we talked about it before, I said non-correlated asset, but to be more precise, usually the idea is it it doesn't experience losses. It may not give you a positive return, but at least doesn't have a negative return. It only can be zero or positive returns. So when the stock market goes down, the buffer asset's not losing value. And it can provide a temporary resource that during when it looks like your portfolio is in trouble, okay, I'm not going to spend for my portfolio. I'm going to try to leave it alone so it can recover. I'm going to temporarily spend for my buffer asset. And that helps manage sequence of returns risks so that if you have a buffer asset on the side, of course, you're introducing a new asset to the picture. But 4% is no longer as risky because... You've got this kind of release valve for sequence risk. You're gonna, you're not gonna take every distribution from the portfolio. You'll occasionally take a distribution from your buffer asset, and therefore what, that can support a higher withdrawal rate for the uh, investment piece. What are some what are some buffer assets, Wade? Because uh, we get this a lot, mm-hmm. and you even though you've given the definition, I think a lot of times people will write in and they'll say, "I have this buffer asset," and then it'll be something like a rental property. Or, or, yeah. or something, right? And I, I think it's worth mentioning what you're thinking of exactly, or mm-hmm. what an example is of a buffer asset that you're thinking of, because I, I still don't think a rental property does the trick, if you will. And there, there's really only three that I would say are true buffer assets, and and the rest you kind of have to get into arguments about. So the, the three buffer assets <laughs> are cash, just having cash on the sidelines. Uh, cash value for a whole life insurance policy that you could take loans from and a home equity conversion mortgage, AKA a reverse mortgage, a variable rate reverse mortgage that has that growing line of credit. And that that's the end of the list. Now, now, you know, not, not to make this a whole episode, but you've mentioned two things that get a bad rap a little bit. And Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the right situation for the right person, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, caveats. Uh, what, what do you mean by uh, cash from a, from a HELOC, from a not a, yeah, reverse not, mortgage? Not a HELOC what do you mean? specifically, though, not... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I know. That's why I caught myself <laughs> and I said reverse mortgage. And what do you mean by cash from a reverse mortgage? And what do you mean by cash from a whole life policy? Mm-hmm. So the, the reverse mortgage, 
has that growing line of credit that cannot lose value over time that you can borrow from as that spending resource. And so the reason that a traditional home equity line of credit will not work as a buffer asset is they can be frozen or canceled. And we've seen this in 2008 during the in financial 08, it crisis, happened quite a bit, yeah. during 2020, during the pandemic. At the exact time you'd want to tap into that resource, it's frozen on you. So a traditional home equity line of credit is not a buffer asset. But the home equity conversion mortgage, the reverse mortgage, has protections that you are able to access that uh, guaranteed. You're not, it can't be frozen or canceled. Uh, the uh, cash value of whole life insurance is kind of a, is interesting how these two very different financial products experience a similar evolution where they were talking about them in the same manner. And it was the same idea with the cash value of whole life insurance. It can't decrease in value. It can only either not grow or grow in a positive manner. And you can structure a policy loan from that in the same way you're the reverse mortgage is a loan, you're borrowing from the home equity with cash value, you're borrowing from the cash or the from the life insurance policy. And that provides a temporary spending resource. Now it's it there'll be interest that then the loan balance will grow, but the idea is this is a buffer asset that by helping to manage sequence of returns risk can hopefully better position your portfolio. And odds are it will better position your portfolio to recover and grow by more so that you can then pay off that loan balance and still have a net positive windfall at the end of retirement. So an example, an example would be something like, okay, I've just retired. I'm year two in retirement. I'm still in that fragile decade sort of danger zone, you know, to borrow from Top Gun. Or Archer, however you <laughs> want to call it. Uh, you're still in that danger zone. And uh, you're like, oh, you know what? I don't want to take distributions this year from my portfolio because it's down 25%, whatever. So instead of that, you take from the reverse mortgage or you take from the life insurance policy. And you may have to do that for two years. But in that time period, the portfolio, you know, if your probability safety, if your probability optionality kind of thing, you're, you, this is your style, right? You're betting on the portfolio recovery, right? The portfolio recovers. It's recovered nicely. You're able to pay back the loans, and you're able to take a distribution from the portfolio. That's that's the idea behind it. Yeah, and, and paying back and the loan becomes that somewhat voluntary. It, it is, yeah, one potential strategy yeah, is to I, voluntarily pay back the loan in advance so that it doesn't grow with interest, and instead you've got more borrowing capacity in the future. But that may not be. Uh, there's some flexibility about whether or not you do that. Uh, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, yeah. the like So actually, when we talked about this before, some questions came in. Well, what sort of rule do you use to decide when should I draw from the buffer asset instead of drawing from the portfolio? Uh, a lot of different rules have been introduced. Some of them are something just along the lines of, okay, if, the, if your portfolio lost value in the year before, in the year prior, then this year you'll spend from the uh, buffer asset. If your portfolio had a gain in the previous year, then this year you'd spend from the portfolio. Uh, there's a lot of different rules like that. I, was, I never published an article on this, but I did behind the scenes play around with this concept and ended up using it for the reverse mortgage book. Uh, that updated third edition that came out this year, uh, that uh, a very simple rule that also seems to work just as well as anything more complicated. And so it's it's simply when you retire, look at the how, what's your investment balance. Add up your taxable accounts, tax deferred IRAs, uh, Roth accounts. Add it up. Keep track of that number. In the future, whenever you want to spend or take a distribution. Look at how much your investment assets are worth. If they're worth more than what you start had at the start of retirement, just in nominal terms, you don't have to even worry about inflation adjustments. Spend from the portfolio. If your remaining portfolio balance is less than it was at the start of retirement, that's when you can tap into the, the buffer asset. And that simple rule uh, it works just as well as any more complicated rule that somebody could and has developed over the years. I, I see you're, great, you're at a loss for words with that stunning. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm doing some mental calculation right now. No, 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 no. That's, 
I, well, I was thinking what you said, uh, how you're the simplicity of things. And, and I think that's a reoccurring theme. And we'll get to this, you know, in, in future episodes. I know that when we asked Brian to come on and just talk about how things are done in, in practical, we, we're talking here in theory right now, but how this is practically implemented. I, I, I think what you said, you don't have to make things overly complicated. Uh, you know, I, I think simplicity and parsimony rules the day when it comes to implementing a successful retirement income strategy. We're just pointing out levers right now. What are levers that work? What are levers that are valid? What are levers that aren't valid? Where are where are where there are potential dragons that that you want to be careful with? And I think that's when I was listening to you. That's what I was thinking. That this kind of hits the theme of the overall podcast. Yeah, and this is going to become a big theme in our next episode as well because we're going to talk about variable spending strategies, and that's an area where financial advisors get very creative and create very complicated strategies. And just something I've been working on recently as well as trying to find ways to simplify all that so that there's just a few basic levers instead of some of the the crazy things you have to keep track of if you're trying to implement the pure version of uh, one of these variable spending strategies. So that, that might be a good preview for and the this... next episode because I think we're... We've covered the first four items on our list. So what's left? Other reasons why the 4% rule may actually be too low are you can use a variable spending strategy and you have reliable income outside your portfolio that makes it you're less vulnerable to a market downturn and therefore can be more aggressive. And with that. Thanks, Wade. Uh, Yeah. We got it in under 50, big okay, guy. What do yeah, you think? We better hurry up and wrap this up. Or we're going to hit the 50 real soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'll do that. Thank you, everyone. Well, thanks. Have a great week. And <laughs> see you next time when we'll talk about variable spending and retirement. Catch you later. Bye. Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.